Um, welcome to our adventure game panel titled What's Next for Adventure Games? Yay. Are you guys all adventure game fans? Uh, we have found our tribe. Um, my name is Roberta Vaughn. I am publicist for Glory Corey Cole's um, company, Transular Games, and their latest last game was Hero U Redemption, and we're now working on Summer Days at Hero U. If you want buttons, I'll have buttons later. Um, but the focus is not on me. Its focus is on the, this lovely panel full of wonderful people. We have over here Dave Gilbert from Wajidai Games. <laughs> Julia Minamata from the Crimson Diamond. you should. It's, it looks like an AGI text parser game. If you were fans of the Laura Bow games, you will love her game. Check it out. Uh, and this is Katie Hallahan from Phoenix Online. And over here narrating and also just <laughs> on the panel is Francisco Gonzalez. We're all really excited for Rose One. So that's our panel, and we did have Josh Mandel was supposed to be here, um, and he can no longer be here just for personal reasons. So, but I think we got the best panel ever right now. So, um, and anyway, I wanted to just quickly thank a few people. Um, for instance, the Classic Gamers Guild, which um, Julie is also, we're all actually we're all a part of. Um, I helped create, and and Julie is a member, and or admin, I should say. Um, but I would like to thank all of our admins because they've been nothing but supportive of our community, especially, event, you know, we're all adventure game fans, so and we work tirelessly to help this community grow, to succeed. We love these games now. This The focus on this panel is the games happening now. Um, as much as we love our past, you know, game, dev, game devs and games. Um, so I want to thank Rick, Ryan, Anna, Jess, Jamie, Josh, Stu, Josh, Kate, Nalani, Sean, Paul, and of course, uh, For more info on joining, uh, we're on Facebook. I know some people don't do the Facebook, but we're on the Facebook. Uh, Facebook.com slash groups classic gamers guild. We also have a podcast, cggpodcast.com. Um, and I was going to thank some other people for sharing our live Twitch Stream, but that didn't happen because there's no internet. <laughs> anyway, oh, that's okay. It, we're going to record it and it'll be up later. So, for those of the people that couldn't make it today, so obviously that's not you guys, but uh, but I did want to say I wanted to thank people like you know, YouTube Adventure Roundtable, um, which Francisco's a huge part of. Um, if you know, um, Trolls Planner of, of um, Space Quest Historian. Um, my boss is the Coles. Um, Lee, uh, she goes by the Brusolka. There are people that just tirelessly twitch and live stream our, you know, our games. And, um, you know, they, they, they do past games, but they, they do a lot of new games. And it just is very encouraging for the adventure community in a whole. So anyway, without further ado, here's the panel. That's it. For me, and take it away, Francisco. All right, thanks, Roberta. Let's give it up for Roberta. Wow, adventure games. This is exciting. I've never moderated a panel before, let alone at PAXI, so this is an exciting experience. So, uh, 
I assume you're all here because you know what an adventure game is, or you hopefully like adventure games. Um, but adventure games are interesting. Um, as, as, uh, modern, as modern designers as we all are, it seems like a lot of the times we're constantly trying to innovate and trying to bring something new to the genre. And we have to sort of balance that with the fans who are into nostalgia and want to capture the, the feel of the early 90s. And I've, I've sort of come to the controversial opinion lately that we work in a genre that's... We're, we're trying to get ahead in a genre that's seemingly focused on the past. So this panel I want to talk a little bit about looking forward and, and how we can do this. So I want to present the question, and I'll be answering these questions too, um, but probably last so I can think of better answers or, or better ones that I would come up with first. Um, so my first question for you all is... What are some adventure games or narrative games that you've played recently that have done something really innovative that you've thought, that's cool? And whoever wants to start can start. No pressure. Okay, fine, I'll start. And I will say that I'm the only one who made notes. And, <laughs> and this question was not on the, the list of questions. It's question number one! <laughs> it's literally question number one. I'm going to lose innovations. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, innovation. What are some innovations in the adventure genre you've seen recently that yeah, inspired? The question was how we innovated, not how yeah, others innovated. Or, or innovations you've seen but not how. Oh, that's, that's anyway, question two. It's okay. okay. I'll do it. <laughs> I will answer the new question, and I will also answer the question, the answer I prepared. This is what happens when you get the questions before the test. Yes. And, yeah, anyway, okay, so one I really liked, and I'm sure a lot of you have, um, have played or seen... It might have really caught your eye because it looked different, but to people who played adventure games 30 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, you might have thought that it looks, looked familiar. And that is The Return of the Oberdin by Lucas Pope. And it, it has Macintosh, black and white, kind of one-bit one graphics. And it is sort of a narrative story where you have to sort of find out the fate of this Oberdin, this vessel that, that was shipwrecked. And I gotta say that I, I didn't have a Mac growing up. I was a PC kid because the PC is the one that had most of the games. But when I saw this game, I immediately was just struck by how, how unique it looked to me, how different it looked from everything else. And I played it, it was fantastic. And my point being is that it looks old, but not something I recognized, but I recognized it as something that was different from what I'd seen before. And for me, that was inspiring when I saw that. Now, should I follow with the answer that was prepared or would you go No, I'll, I'll ask the, the question that you were prepared for next okay. after this one. Let's just, yeah. Okay, really quickly because other people are here and we have a short amount of time. A couple things I think for the future of, of adventure games that I find really cool. Accessible tools. So I'm developing the Crimson Diamond on something called Adventure Game Studio. And Adventure Game Studio is purpose-built engine for adventure games. It is very easy to use. It's got a very active community. And there are so many times I would have been completely stuck in my game development had I not had that community. So for me, there was that. But there's other engines, too. We have There's something called AdventureOn, which is um, another very easy-to-use engine. You can even use it in browser um, for, for people who might not have a good machine, browser-based as well and Twine. I think a lot of people here know Twine. <coughs> and the reason I find these types of accessible programs so amazing and inspiring is because it brings these tools to people who might not necessarily have had the know-how technically. 
to build a game. And I think it's really cool because nowadays we're learning a lot of coding in classrooms. There's now a lot of game design courses. There's a lot of um, programming that we take. Um, I didn't have that experience, but now there are game design courses, and people are learning how to use these tools. And what it does is it gives adventure games sort of a broader audience and a broader um, amount of people who can potentially develop for this style of game than we ever had. So that to me is really cool. Um, I guess if uh, I can think of a more modern game that really inspired me. Um, it's not so much that it, it inspired me, but uh, over the course, I've been making these games for about 14 years, and I always have like very specific like rules I made for myself. Like I wanna, I believe in very efficient dialogue. I don't like things to be very overwritten. I don't want to waste the player's time. And then I played Oxenfree, which takes all of those rules and sets them on fire. These characters don't shut up, and yet the game remains completely engaging. And I'm playing this, I'm like, I just want to hear these characters talk and keep talking. And I wondered why, because I've always felt that that was a bad thing. And I think that the, the reason why it's engaging is because gameplay doesn't stop when they're talking. You continue to play and they continue to chatter around you. And that, that's something that I found very interesting. It was like kind of going around and hanging out with your friends. And it was sort of a new way to look at a design paradigm that I thought was set in stone for myself, and it wasn't. And so it's, it sort of taught me to keep an open mind and, uh, about just how I approach design and writing. Yeah, I actually, Oxenfree and the newer game they have called um, uh, After Party, mm. which is a similar kind of playstyle. You're walking around talking and everything, but you're also playing drinking games to get through hell so that you can get alive again. Um, and it's great. I played that here last year. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun that you get like, invested in the conversations and how you choose them and changes stuff in the game, um, especially in Oxenfree. Um, and similarly, there's a game I recently started playing, which is also in the Indie Mega booth here, called Coffee Talk, um, which is more narrative-like. You're just, you're a barista in a Seattle that's also full of monsters, and they just come in and like talk about their lives and their relationships, and you make them coffee, and you can do latte art, but also like what drink you make will affect how whatever it is they're doing happens to go, the conversations and how you have them can affect like what's going on with them. And um, so I guess for me, like, I see a lot more of and really enjoy the games where it's kind of like you're almost more invested in the NPCs than you are in yourself as a character um, and sort of like affecting those relationships and those stories. So uh, there's a series of games on Steam uh, developed by a developer named Phil Fortier. He, I think he's based in Seattle. Uh, it's called Snail Trick. And there are these little short comedy games where you play a snail um, in space. And what's interesting about it is, like the Crimson Diamond, it's got a text parser. But Phil has managed to do something really innovative, which I think is amazing, autocomplete in a text parser. So you start typing open door, and it'll say open, and you type D-O, and then it'll say door. You know, dongle, whatever <laughs> words from whatever dictionary he's using. Um, and it just opens up these possibilities, and it just it's something really simple, but really cool because you think about how often we deal with autocomplete now on our phones uh, on a daily basis, and introducing it into the old text parser games is cool. Actually, Julia's doing something interesting too in the Crimson Diamond as far as the text parser, where instead of typing open door, you can type OD, and it knows what that means, and there's like little shortcuts and stuff, so I think that's a pretty cool innovation. 
Um, so now moving on to the second question. Can each of you talk about a game that you have either made or worked on that, uh, that did something that you thought was innovative? And could you explain what your intent or uh, just something you tried to do to make things a little bit more modern? I think in general, um, there's hardly any one specific thing. I mean, I'm, I'm one guy making a game. It's not going to be any innovation I do is, is going to be small. Um, but I think what most um, modern developers try to focus on um, is immersion more than anything else um, because that's something you can do. Um, the since, uh, sorry, let me, let me say that again so I sound smart. Uh, <laughs> basically, um, modern players don't have the time or patience for what uh, for the games that we played during the 80s and 90s, the internet exists now. And so modern developers understand this and they only get stuck on a puzzle if they want to be stuck on a puzzle. With Google, just like a click away, no one ever really gets stuck. And so less effort now is put on puzzles and more on immersion, uh, making you like really feel like you're in an experience or really branching out on the interactivity, like tactile, things like that. Um, so I think that's what I kind of focus on for the most part. Um, say, I think in, you know, for instance, a number of years back at this point that we designed it, but um, when we were designing Cognition, we had a, a mechanic where you're interacting with your environment in particular ways. The main character gets visions when she touches things. And in each episode, we would add in like, okay, now here's a new way that you can do, you know, use the same power in a kind of new and different way. Um, and then that kind of built up to in the last one, um, one where it was like, okay, now we're gonna kind of track some of your relationships with people on screen um, to hopefully, you know, encourage like, go back and, and see what happens if you piss this guy off instead of being friends with him. Um, to just throw in some variability and replayability in it. Uh, for the, the Crimson Diamond, I'm very much in Dave's boat in that I'm one person making a game and it's very much designed and inspired by what we did have back in those days of the old school adventure games. But what I have tried to do is to sort of take lessons from those games, stuff that we didn't like about the game design, stuff that was frustrating, stuff that with the internet now doesn't work anymore. I've been concentrating on, you know, there's a, a notebook feature to help prompt the player through the game, which is something Thimbleweed Park had, which they stole, and, and I think it's a great innovation. And, and as well, just the way the game is designed in terms of narrative, it is more of moving through a story versus trying to solve a puzzle that might not make a lot of sense and designed to be that way. And, and it, it's not gonna survive that way. I, I think more and more people like, want that immersive experience, they wanna move through a story, be a character. And, and, and not have to worry about something that doesn't make any sense. So um, it is a text parser game as well. And, and I understand for people that might be, it's not an innovation, but because it was something that we had so long ago, it can be maybe seen as something that is new again, potentially. And what Phil has been doing with the predictive text part of it, and I'm doing those, those text shortcuts for the text parser, ways to sort of try to take the lessons we have, have learned over the years to try to make this Kind of, it can be an intimidating uh, interface, more accessible for people, and more interested in trying it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, innovation doesn't necessarily have to be bringing something completely new. It can just be taking something we're used to and making it better. It's interesting how a lot of these innovations are kind of um, trying to find new ways of dealing with 
uh, aspects of the games that people found annoying. It's like, okay, let's do this thing because it was annoying, so now we're gonna fix it by adding this feature. Um, and I think that, that trying to avoid those annoying things in the first place is where a lot of developers should try to put their focus. Well, yeah, I mean, adventure games unfortunately get a bad rap. I mean, we had a version of this panel at PAX West last year, and the first question was, what's the first thing that comes to mind when someone says adventure game? And Laurie Cole's answer was frustration, which I think speaks volumes. <laughs> she meant developing them. Uh, um, but to, to answer the question myself, uh, the last game I did, Lamplight City, I wanted to make a detective game where you could screw up and you could finish the story to get rid of you know, the annoying feature of like games that had dead ends where if you didn't pick up an item or something, you couldn't finish the game. I wanted to be able to you know, solve cases and maybe you didn't get, uh, you made a particular witness angry and then they shut down and they didn't talk to you and you couldn't solve that particular lead. But there were other leads and other people to accuse. Um, so that was what I thought mostly uh, would work for that would be, the, or rather what the focus of the game should be would be the investigations and the interrogations. So early on I thought, all right, I'm going to get rid of inventory. I'm not going to have any inventory combination puzzles. And oh my god, an adventure game without inventory combination what? puzzles. What? Yeah, sacrilege. But Blade Runner did it, and everybody loves Blade Runner. It just got re-released. Um, so that was kind of what I was trying to do uh, with my uh, innovation. But also, uh, I'm glad that you brought up Google because my next question, this is not an ad for Google. Uh, my next question is, how do you all approach puzzle design when a walkthrough is just a Google search away? Um, generally, it's like I, I tend to cut a lot of puzzles for that reason. But I think the most important thing is um, making sure the puzzles are fun to solve. If you're enjoying the process of, the reason why people go to Google is because they're not having fun. And if you, have to, if you have to leave my game in order to enjoy it, then I failed as a designer. I didn't do something right. So um, you need to focus on making puzzles or challenges that are actually fun to puzzle your way through so you don't want to stop. Yeah, we, uh, same thing, like, you don't want them to leave, so it's like, you know, we were trying to put in a lot of, uh, you know, make it fun, and also add as many, like, context clues that are like, I'm not going to give it away, but I'm going to, like, use certain words repeatedly to kind of point someone in the right direction, or even just having a hint system that's inside the game and is useful, um, so that it's like, well, instead of leaving, you could just get that hint that you want that might help you a little bit right here instead. Um, for the game that I'm designing... Uh, I, yeah, as I said, it's a text parser game, so already there's a bit of a barrier of entry for that type of game. So when I design the puzzles, I'm trying to make them as logical as possible, very straightforward. And even that, when you have to generate the answer from your brain and type it out and then execute it in the parser line, that already makes it more of a puzzle than people can be used to. So in that way, I've kind of designed my game to be as straightforward as possible, but even though I've tried to do that, I know that it's going to be a bit tricky for people. Um, another thing when I was approaching the way that I'm designing it is the, the game, If you, I said I had a notebook, and you can just follow the notebook and it will progress you through the game. But if you just do those things that the notebook explicitly says, you're going to miss a lot of the game. So as Francisco said, I'm trying to encourage exploration. So you have to move from place to place, you have to listen in on conversations people are having and then ask them questions. And when you ask people questions, you can learn more about the characters and the situation. But I don't make it so that you have to ask 
this magical question that will progress you, unless it's explicitly said in the notebook. I'm very clear about progression in my game. I didn't want people to accidentally progress the game to a new phase when they weren't done with what they were doing. So you'll know what you need to do. And before that, you can feel comfortable exploring at your leisure and ex experimenting and learning new things. So I'd, I'd say it's fairly safe to say that we all uh, prioritize character development and like connections with, with the player characters in the games we design. Um, how do you all feel about sociopath adventure game characters? Like, you know, most adventure game characters in the classics we love are actively steal things. They distract people, they put rats in soup. They do things that would get you in a lot of trouble in the real world. Um, and there's, there's actually kind of a lot of malice in a lot of uh, adventure game puzzles of the old days. How do, you, uh, how do you approach, like, do you ever find yourself designing a puzzle where you're like, my god, this, my character's a jerk, I gotta redo that. So when we were designing Silver Lining, because uh, based on the King's Quest games, we were frequently going through and we're like, man, Graham is an asshole. <laughs> this is going around, stealing things from everybody, doesn't care, I'm the king, whatever. Um, in that case, we actually made it like you got points if you went and put things back when you were done with them. <laughs> oh, nice. So, <laughs> something to smooth this over. Actually, a, a good friend of mine has told me that he's had an idea for a game for years where you play as an adventure game character at the end of the quest and the whole game is just returning everything you've oh stolen. Oh my god. <laughs> that does there's a text adventure that does exactly that. Called Zero Come Game. Zero Sum Game. It's a it's a old text adventure, like freeware text adventure from the 90s. Oh, okay. It starts off at the end of the game and you have to like go around and undo all of the things that you did. <laughs> And it, you make things like 10 times worse by doing that, it's really funny. Um, I think it's natural for people to try to push the limits of what their character will do, because it's not you in the game doing whatever you want. There are going to be limitations. So when I design something, and I've got, you want the character to do, to do something, and she won't do it, I'll have her say something that explains why she's not going to do that, or what, it, it kind of informs and tells you the kind of character that you are playing, because it's not necessarily you, it is a character. So if you try, everyone tries to hug and kiss and punch and everything. So I try to make sure that those responses fit with who she is as a person. It also, um, it, you want to keep things um, faithful to the character. You also want to make the character fun to play. The um, first time, when I, I learned this lesson with my, one of my very first commercial games, um, way back, oh my god, 2006, way too long ago. It was called the Blackwell Legacy, and one of the first puzzles in the game is you play this very awkward woman named Rosa who needs to talk to this woman who's um, surrounded by a bunch of people in a park, and she's too shy to go up in front of all these people, and so you have to, like, she, you have to like lure, lure her dog away so she comes after the dog and disengages from the crowd, so then Rosa's more comfortable uh, talking to the woman. And a lot of people were annoyed by this because... It wasn't, the, it wasn't a natural obstacle, it wasn't um, even a character saying no, or the game saying no, it was the character you're playing is telling you no. And that was very frustrating. I think if I would, could go back and do it again, I would probably do it very differently. But in terms of characters being sociopathic, I think that's like a trope that actually doesn't really exist anymore. I, don't, you know, I haven't seen that in a long, long time. So I don't know if that's really an issue now. Well, I, I could name a game, but I don't want to name names. <laughs> but it rhymes with Gabonia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Comedy games can get away with it. Yeah, that's true. That much. Comedy games can get away with it. I will 
little aside to that, I think you see that a lot more in games that are going to have like some like minor branching paths where it's like, oh, you know, you could have been nice to this person, but you pissed them off, so now whatever that option was for solving your problem is no longer there, and you're going to figure something else out. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot, too. Like, as far as my, my approach to designing puzzles lately has gone more from being puzzles to be more like obstacles. Like, rather than say, okay, well, uh, in order to open this door, I need to solve this complex series of locks or whatever. Like, like these puzzles. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> uh, just think more about, like, in-world, what is a more interesting way for this door to be locked? Like, what can I learn about the world or about the characters or anything by bypassing this? And, um, and yeah, like, the option, if you make a game where you have an option for you can play your character nice or mean or whatever, um, you kind of have to think about, like, well, is it within my character's scope to, to do this? Like, the game I'm making now, Rosewater, uh, the main character, her history is that she kind of has this sort of violent past as, like, she used to be a bare-knuckle brawler, and she's trying to escape from that past or trying to put that behind her. So it's totally within reason if she wants to deck something. Like, she'll feel bad about it, and she'll be like, oh, no, that's come, that, that part of me is coming out again. But it's not just, like... I'm a, you know, Girl Scout, and now I'm going to suddenly punch somebody for no reason. Um, anyway, moving on from that. Uh, there was another thing I wanted to... This is the, the curveball question that's not on there. Uh, on the subject of puzzle design, uh, there's a bunch of stock adventure game puzzles, like, you know, distract somebody, open a door, whatever. Uh, we've all designed games where we have player characters who have specific... Uh, careers, I guess? I made a game about a real estate agent once. Uh, you made Cognition, which was about a psychic FBI agent. Julia's making the Crimson Diamond, which stars a mineralogist. Dave made Unavowed, which had a bunch of companion characters that had specific abilities. So it opened up the possibility to design puzzles that related to that. So, like, I had some puzzles where you had to convince people, like, logic puzzles to buy houses. Um, that wasn't the entirety of the game, trust me. Um, you were for the mob. Like to actually buy a house, though. Well, yeah. Um, so then, yeah, you were mentioning you had puzzles relating to, like, Erica's psychic abilities. You have mineral-related puzzles. And, and unavowed, there's, you know, different solutions based on who you have with you. Can you guys talk a little bit more about that, your approach to thinking, well, how do I design a puzzle that... Uh, illustrates the unique career, for lack of a better word, of my protagonist. This is interesting because I've been actually thinking about that in my current project. Um, and the, uh, the main story gimmick is that it's about time travel. And so whenever I find myself in a situation where I need to design, where I have an obstacle and I need the player to get around this obstacle, um, I have to remember, this is she has the power of time travel. So how would she use her unique ability to get around this obstacle? And with Unavowed, that was kind of multiplied like four times because you could choose uh, various characters to go with you on any mission. And so I always had to think, well, how, how can I use each of these characters? And, and I, have to, I had to create situations for all four of these characters to get around, which made things very complicated. But if you have a... Um, character with a unique and special ability or a gimmick or what have you, like you have to make that part of the narrative and use it, because that's the draw. If you don't use that mechanic, like if I 
didn't have my character use time travel to get past this puzzle, like, why is the player playing my game? That's the joy, that's the fun, that's why they're playing my game. So, um, that's how I approach it. Yeah, there's, I don't, again, I don't want to name names, so I'm not going to because the developers are dear friends. But there is a game where you play as a code breaker, and there's one puzzle where you have to decipher a code at the beginning, and then you never use that again. And I was like, oh, this is such a wasted opportunity. But I can't talk because I made a game called Sharplight where you play as a, a, a lady who's a mechanic in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. And I'm, my brain is not very mechanically oriented. Ideally, this situation would have, been, would have called for a lot of like, puzzles where you have to actually fix things and like, tinker with things. She repairs something in a dream. She does, but she clicks on it, and she's like, well, that's repaired. <laughs> so, that's how I work. So, so, yeah, but anyway, please. Dream logic. It's yes. weird. Um, yes, for Erica, who's the FBI agent, and um, it both, like, you know, so we were, like, exploring crime scenes and stuff, and part of it was, like, as we looked, and like, what do people actually do, you know, when they go to these? And it's like, oh, this is going to be super boring, because there's a lot of procedure, and do this. And we're like, should we have her try to, like pick things up, you know, like, uh, not touching the objects, not contaminate evidence, and we're like, no, that's gonna be way too hard to animate, forget it. Um, so there is a bit of that, like, we're playing, like, the Hollywood style of, of detection and stuff. Um, but yeah, in, in our case, we also had the, uh, the person that you're kind of up against also has a certain ability, a psychic ability, and we just had that, like, that antagonist kind of setting up a lot of things for the main character that required her to use the ability. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of leaning into it from both angles. Um, and then FBI-wise, occasionally it was like, well, you can just kind of flash your badge at this person and go on in, and, uh, and so forth. Incidentally, this is the very first time I've ever said a word publicly about what I'm working on, so... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just spilled the beans right there. <laughs> Exclusive news. Do you have a name for this project? Uh, not quite yet. I've, I have a tentative title, but I'm not going to say anything else. Oh, okay. Never lock into a title. That's, I've learned that the hard way. Uh, yeah, for my game, um, the way the puzzles kind of inform the character is, yeah, she is a mineralogist, and it's kind of a hobby and an interest that I've had for a long time, so I've kind of got all these books and stuff already, and just learning about um, what kind of geologic region would be good for, well, it's a diamond find, so all about diamonds and other gemstones, and what you'd need in your field kit as a mineralogist. So early on in the game, in the introduction, she kind of like loses her field kit. So one of the first things you have to do after the demo, so the demo doesn't include this part, but one of the first parts after the demo is you have to kind of improvise a kit. And you get to learn about the things that you would need in that kit in order to use that kit to solve other problems. So I thought that was a fun way to do it. And just giving little bit like mineral facts, rock facts. I have um, the Crimson Diamond Gazette. It's a newsletter that I do every month. And I always try to include an interesting fact about a rock or a famous rock that got discovered recently or something like that. Because it is an interest of mine. And I think that really works for when I'm designing something because I can put those things that I find really interesting into the game. And it's, it's not educational per se, but it is... It, it does have some fun facts, and I could base my puzzles on those facts. And that passion is so important. Sorry, I already know I went. There was a game we released about a decade ago called Primordia, which is one of our biggest sellers. The developer is really interested in property law, fascinated by property law. And a lot of the themes in the game have to do with property law. 
it's weird. It's a sci-fi post-apocalyptic thing. But like characters like talk always talk about who owns things. And it's like taking his ideas about property law that he's obsessed with, and he put them into this post-apocalyptic world, and it's fascinating because he has such a passion for the subject. So, like, yeah, you know, you might think rocks are boring, but if you have a passion for it and you can like do something interesting with it, that's like you can't hide passion, and people get um, they get really engaged when someone's really passionate about something. So, that's important. Yeah, I mean, the the great thing as designers is you have the power to take something that other people might not understand or might think is boring and then just let them look at it through your lens. And, yeah. I was going to ask, is the slogan for the Crimson Gazette, our paper really rocks? Because <laughs> if it's not, it I'm sorry, fun. I have to get at least one point. It takes place in the 20s, so that wasn't really a thing, was it? Yeah, you're right. Never mind, um, Okay, so I have, I, I asked for some, uh, some crowdsource questions on Twitter, and uh, my next question comes to us from Sergio Sia, and the second part of the question is from Alexander Mejia of Human Interact, so, well, we're not seeing live, but um, shout out to you guys. Do you think VR will become a thing in adventure games? And what's the audience overlap for point-and-click adventure games, escape rooms, and VR narrative experiences? I mean, all right, like, this sort of ties into a kind of, not really a pet peeve, but a thing I have opinions on, whether it's like you say, okay, what's the, what's the Venn diagram of like adventure games in this, or adventure game players in this, and that's assuming that all adventure game players are like one thing, or all adventure games are one thing, and that, it's like saying all books are one thing, or all films are one thing, and that, that kind of um, rubs me the wrong way, because I feel like I'm telling my own kind of stories, and like, one not like I'm it's like saying a sci-fi adventure is the same as like a mystery or a western They're very different types of stories appeal to very different kinds of audiences so I am not sure how I would answer that question well let me piggyback on that by saying <laughs> I also have a pet peeve <laughs> it's the old man complaining hour my um yeah, actually, you make a good point about the whole like comparison thing. Uh, you see a lot of marketing copy where people are like, oh, it's a classic adventure game. Um, and the two games that always get brought up are King's Quest or Monkey Island. And that's fine. But those games are over 30 years old. And I did a little preliminary search on uh, Moby Games. And I just want to point out, from uh, according to Moby Games, anyways, this is all games that are labeled as graphic adventures. So this isn't even counting like IF or text-based games or anything. Um, from 1980 to 2000, there are 309 graphic adventure entries in Moby Games. From 2000 to 2020, let's do a show of hands. How many people think that there are less than 300? <laughs> All right, three. How many people think that there are more or less than 1,000? Okay, how many people think that there are less than 15? How many people think that it's 1,500 or more? That's the majority. All right, well, it's 1,225 adventure games since then. So my point is, uh, if you're saying, hey, it's an adventure game, it's like this, say it's like something that came out within like the past five years at least, please. And if you see original. a bad puzzle, please don't compare it to that stupid mustache thing. Yeah, let's, let's, let's carry the cat hair mustache. <laughs> there are plenty of great and horrible examples of bad puzzles in the last 20 years. Yeah. All right, rant over. Okay, um, I'll 
Okay, I, I can say something as an old person too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say that I'm not a fan of VR in general, but I will say that I think adventure games would be a great place for VR. Uh, I get the headaches, I get the nausea with all those action games and the flying through the air, but I think a big part of adventure games is inhabiting a setting and that immersion that we're talking about and in a way where I'm not dodging bullets or trying to shoot people. To actually live and inherit uh, and move through a space and talk to people. I think it would be really great for that personally. Um, and another thing to go even further back is um, the complete opposite of VR, which I think there is a huge, I've seen a huge growth in this aspect of adventure games, is I don't know if you guys have played um, any type of adventure game style board games. And that's been a huge thing that has come up in the past few years. So there's something called Time Stories, which is a legacy-based board game that is basically an adventure game, uh, like in cardboard form, with cards and everything like that. And it, it was hugely successful. I played a bit of it, and it's so much like an adventure game, just physically, more physical than what we do even. And I think that's really cool. Um, in terms of escape rooms, they have escape room board games as well, and card games. There is, um, they're called very similar things, but Exit the Game, Unlock, Escape Room the Game, all these things. And some of them are more puzzle-based, but some of them do move you through a narrative where you are solving problems, you're visiting new locations, you have to examine things. And I think, this is something I didn't see uh, maybe five years ago, and I see them all over the place now. And if you haven't played one, I think you should give it a try. It's about maybe uh, 17 to 20 bucks. You're usually a one-time kind of thing because you've learned the whole, the whole game, but that's what we do anyway, most of the, for the most part. Uh, so I, I think VR would be, I'd love to see a VR Return of the Oberdin. I think that would be really cool. Um, it's not, VR's not my thing, but with the board games, I encourage you guys to try an adventure game style of board game. Um, and I'm, that's exciting to me too because it makes me feel like there is sort of a desire to play this type of game that extends beyond the digital. Yeah, um, I agree. I, th I think there's a lot of potential in VR to work really well for adventure games, but maybe like it's not quite there yet. Um, like I, th I haven't played too many of the games within, but the ones I have played are kind of very like, you're in one place and doing a few kind of tasks that are fun, and they seem to still mostly be exploring like, I can move around, quote unquote, in this space and, and do small tasks. Um, and I think maybe as the technology kind of continues to improve a little bit, like, and those games get longer and they'll be able to better take on a full story. Um, and I will second the ad adventure board games. Um, I've played both Pandemic Legacy and Betrayal and House of the Hill Legacy, and they're so fun because then you come back to it and you're like, okay, you kind of ha have characters and, and very much are playing through a narrative. I just started playing Betrayal Legacy with some friends last weekend, and I murdered two people as the little girl. Oh it was so cool. <laughs> um, we, we should talk about it later. See what we've done different. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I saw a, a, VR uh, a VR game at GDC a couple of years ago that was advertised as a point-and-look adventure game, which I thought was very clever, but I didn't... Uh, um, yeah, right, with your, with your eye. Um, but yeah, I think VR would be an interesting, an interesting medium uh, for more uh, adventure-y narrative games. Um, I mentioned at the last, last panel, uh, Blade Runner 2049 had a little companion piece where you were investigating a crime scene 
and you had to move around, and you had to examine things, and you had to like do adventure gamey stuff. Um, Westworld also had a pretty interesting immersive uh, companion VR thing too. Um, so yeah, I would love to see stuff like that fleshed out more, more narrative, just like adventure game style VR stuff. Um, but I also do want to say that I did my very first escape room ever, uh, right here in Boston actually, a couple of years ago, with some friends that were also adventure game fans. And the very first thing we had to do, because the, the premise was you were locked in a jail cell, and the very first thing you had to do was use a broom that was leaning against the wall to get a key, a ring of keys <laughs> off of the ring and open the cell. And I was like, this is an adventure game. This is cool. <laughs> um, so I think there's, yeah, there's definitely some kind of hope there. Um, we're running a little short on time, so let me pick another one of these questions. Uh, let's see, let's see. Oh, okay, here's, here's one. Now that Telltale has come and gone, do you all still think episodic games are feasible? <laughs> <laughs> well, and also since you have experience in the episodes, I also made a couple. So, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think they're feasible. I think you've got to be really careful about how you plan them and release them and so forth. Um, I don't know that Telltale's issues really came from the episodic nature of the games they made necessarily. Well, I didn't mean I didn't mean <laughs> yeah. there was a correlation between right. they made episodic games and now yeah. they're gone. But yeah. I just yeah, they were kind of the. I mean. They, the, the bonuses that we always noticed was, you know, like, you, you kind of get, like, that boost of your release day, you know, three or four times. Um, and so, like, you know, any time you release a new one, it's, like, hopefully, you know, bolsters the ones that you've already released um, as far as, you know, the, in, the, in the business end of it. Um, so I think they are. Um, but maybe they need some, some more thought about how people do them. I used to say that the... Um when folks uh, approach me with an idea or a pitch for an episodic series, I would think, well, the, the faith just isn't there yet unless you're Telltale. Uh, because Telltale, regardless of what you thought of their individual games, you never doubted that they would finish it, you know, until, <laughs> until recently. But they, they did finish it in the end. Um, I think the, the problem a lot of people, um, uh, the mistake a lot of uh, folks make is that they make the assumption that the first game will sell or will fund the rest of them which is a mistake. That's not how TV seasons are made. They make them all, and then they release them piecemeal, and the whole idea is that it stays in the conversation for a long time. Uh, I think if you're going to make an episodic game, you have to make it an episodic story and understand why you're making an episodic series. Um, is it because you want to tell a whole bunch of stories under a larger arc, or is it because you, if you if the reason why you're doing an episodic series is because you can't afford to make a full game, so you're chopping it up, then that is uh, that you're already like dead out of the water because you released the first game that's incomplete, and no one's going to come back and, and buy the rest of them. So you need to have a plan for the whole thing, not just make one and then hope that will fund the rest because that's the because um, that's. The that's what I think when I hear episodic game. I think one short game with a cliffhanger ending, and maybe there'll be another one if it sells. Uh, so I don't want to get invested in something that might not be complete. And honestly, like you guys are one of the few that did it in like a year. It was amazing. Yeah, and yeah, it's really impressive. We did not expect like to just make the first one, and then hopefully that'll help for the other. No, you had like that, you did that, that money will come in, but we were already making and going to put on yeah. the other one. So yeah. 
Yeah, the, the funding is a big issue when it comes to stuff like this. And I know for Dave and for Francisco and myself, we are pretty much solo game developers. So we're doing basically every aspect of our game. And if you're trying to fund an episodic series, you have to promote and you have to push to get people to you know, pay attention to each campaign that you run, which is a complete separate job beyond all the other things that we're trying to do with at the same time. So I find for me, and I'm, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, we just feel like there's already so much that we prefer to focus on making the game in its entirety. Yeah, there's, yeah. <laughs> um, so we have about 15 minutes left. I would like to open up the floor to audience questions, but I'm gonna ask one more question. I don't think, I don't know if we'll have an easy answer for this one, but the question is just so wonderfully worded I can't resist not asking it. This one comes from Sebastian Burnett, who is a developer who's making a game called Bertram Fiddle. And he asks, how can adventure game developers reach all the countless casual gamers who would absolutely love a beautifully crafted narrative game, but remain blissfully unaware that such a thing exists? It's, that is such an interesting question. Because um, back when I first started, this is a, it's a bit of a long story, I'll try to be, uh, tell it quickly. Um, back when I first started, um, I had a, a good friend named Amanda Finch who um, did this game series called Avion, and it did really well on casual portals like Big Fish and, and so on. And she saw my game, she said, I think this would do really well with the casual audience. You should pitch it to Big Fish. So I did. They accepted it, and it was, um, it did really, really well on Big Fish in like 2007. Like more than I ever earned selling direct. The game wasn't on Steam yet. And at the time I thought, wow, I've cracked the code. This is my audience now. I'm going to sell to the, I'm going to get my games on Big Fish and the casual portals, and that's my market. I didn't expect that to be my market, but it became my market. And then I released my next game, put it on Big Fish, and it's like cricket strip. The casual market changes just as fickle and just as you know, malleable as any other market. They will move on to the next like, exciting thing. And so like, if you're trying to, like, if you make a game for a specific market, like I tried to do, I thought, oh, casual audience, make it for that audience. And if you, if you do that, you kind of, rather if you're making your game with that in mind, you're gonna, it's gonna lack a certain something going to lack a certain soul, it's going to lack, um, it'll just feel very hollow because you're not making the game for the right reasons. And that was my mistake. And I found that when I really want to make, when I, people ask me, who's your audience? I say, kind of pretentiously, myself. I want to make a game that I personally like and want to play because then I'll have the passion for it. As I said, you can't fake passion. And then the audience and it kind of uh, gets connected that way. If I just said, oh, I want to sell to the casual audience because there's a lot of them and they spend a lot of money, then I'm dead in the water. Like Companies with millions of dollars to burn have entire teams trying to find the right market to sell to, and they always get it wrong. So I don't have a prayer. So I, want to, I might as well make the games I want to make. That also kind of just begs the question of, you know, how do you... The, the, I guess the, the sort of... Uh, Albatross is you're making a game you're passionate about, but it's still an adventure game, and still people who have preconceived notions of what an adventure game is might be thinking, oh, I don't, I don't know, 
uh, I don't want to put cat hair mustaches on things. I know we said we I mean, I think we've all, like, you and me and Katie and, like, and Julia, like, we wouldn't be doing this if people weren't actually buying it. No, it's true. Like, it's true. We've been doing this for a long time. We yeah. would not still be around if people weren't actually buying them yeah. and, like, we're able to live on them. So I think no one loves that story or no one likes adventure games. Adventure games are dead. No one likes that story more than adventure game developers and players. Like we, tell, we say this all the time, and it's just a narrative that I think we like for some reason because it makes us feel, you know, like scrappy underdogs. But you know, we're frauds. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've, I, it, it, it comes down to stories in the end, and if you are making a good story that folks can relate to, folks will resonate with that. No pun intended, I released a game once called Resonance. Um, people will, you know, connect to that and find you one way or the other. Do you two have any input? That's a really good answer. Yeah. Oh, um, well, just to add on to that, it, it's the same difficulty anyone has when they're trying to introduce something unfamiliar to people. And how is that done? And a lot of it's a lot of legwork. Um, when I showed my game um, at EGLX in Toronto, and uh, a lot of people hadn't seen a text parser adventure game. A lot of people hadn't seen an adventure game. And it was a matter of showing people what it was and how it played and right in front of them. It's like when you go to you know, a world exhibition and there's a new kind of mop and you need to, you know, you need <laughs> to show people how that mop works. That, it's, it's a lot like that and, and it's a lot of hard work to do it that way. And, Unfortunately, when it's something new, it's hard to get at people, especially when we don't have the types of funds we would need to get a Super Bowl commercial or something like that. Um, to get it in front of people, I think sometimes you do have to show it in person and, and, and show it that way. Uh, another good way to do it is also with Let's Players. Um, I know sometimes there are difficulties with us as adventure gamers um, with a story-based game is do we want the Let's Players to play it? And there's always a bit of a controversy. Some people say no, some people say yes. And for me, I think if it can put it in front of a person that hasn't played an adventure game before and they can see what it's like and they would be more comfortable with that idea, I think it's a good thing. The most painful experience of my life was when I was, um, I was working for a publisher, I was working for Hire Gig, and it was for a casual game company, going back to the casual audience, and they took my old school style point-and-click adventure game and they put it in front of playtesters who are like familiar with Diner Dash and Chocolatier, and they were so confused. It was the weirdest thing. Was, there was a locked door and a crowbar, and they picked up the crowbar, and they would try to use the crowbar on, on the player character. And they just, every single one of the testers kept doing that. And we asked, why are you doing that? They said, well, I'm giving her the crowbar so she can open the door. And that makes totally, if you've never, that makes total logical sense. Even though if you grew up playing these games, you would know exactly what to do. It seems so obvious to us. It's not obvious to people who don't play those games. That's why showing it to other people yeah. in person is so valuable. And trying to teach that through tutorials was difficult. Yeah. All right, so we have 10 minutes left. I'm going to open up to audience questions. But before we do that, I'm going to give us all a little opportunity to promote ourselves because so that way we can actually get it done and not be like, all right, bye, everybody, this is going so, starting from, let's start with Dave. Come down the table. Everybody talk about where we can find you on social media, what you're working on now. What? Yeah. Uh, well, as I said, I'm working on a game that I haven't really announced yet, but we are publishing a game called Nighthawks. It's kind of a sunless sea 
Vampire Bloodlines Fusion. Um, it's by a guy named Richard Cobbett. Uh, so that's gonna hopefully come out later this year. It's looking really good. Um, a couple of years ago, I released a game called Unavowed. Uh, it's an urban fantasy uh, set in New York. Um, you can find me on social media and online at Wadget Games. That's Wadget with a J, not a G. Um, so yeah, you can find me there. I'm on Twitter a lot. Cool. Uh, yeah, I'm Julia Minamata, and I'm making The Crimson Diamond, and it's an EGA text parser adventure game. Uh, you can find me at thecrimsondiamond.com, and on that you'll find sort of links to everything. I've got a Steam store page where you can download the demo, chapter one of the game. I know it's, we talked about episodic, <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, chapter one of the game you can play, um, and uh, everything, all the links are, are there. So, I mean, my Twitter, um, Facebook not so much, but yeah, with the Classic Gamers Guild, I'm on there, and I'm an admin, so you can join up with us there. And Katie Hallahan from Phoenix Online Studios, and we are at postudios.com. Um, I think that's also, yeah, PO Studios on Twitter and Phoenix Online Studios on Facebook. And uh, yeah, you can see all the games that we have made and published. Uh, we have one that we're publishing that should be out later this year, hopefully called Bleeding Moons. That's someone else's game that we're putting out. Um, that's kind of our next big upcoming thing. Cool, and I'm Francisco Gonzalez. Uh, from Grundislav Games, that's G-R-U-N-D-I-S-L-A-V games.com or Grundislav Games on Twitter. Uh, I recently released a game called Lamplight City, a detective game where it's okay to fail, set in an alternate 19th century. It's currently on sale on Steam for 30% off, so you can check it out there. Um, I'm currently working on a game called Rosewater, which is a Wild West game set in the same world. Um, so yeah, you can check out all my stuff at uh, my website. Two of my games, The Golden Wake and Charlight, are available through Wadjedi Games, so there you go. And with that, let's open up the floor to this handsome gentleman here. Can I just Hi, one, sir. Can I say one quick thing before we do that? Oh, I yeah, forgot sure. to mention, I have postcards. If anyone wants to, after the panel, come get a promotional postcard with all the information, please come see me. All right. Yes, sir, what's your question? Uh, thank you. You're so sweet. Um, so I'm going to jump off of the VR question. Uh, and Dave, you mentioned literacy in, in adventure games. Is aside from technology, are there certain genres that you look to and you're like, man, we could totally use that in adventure games, and how would that help an adventure game sort of open up the literacy or sort of the accessibility to, you know? Because I, I don't play a lot of adventure games myself. I was introduced to, you know, adventure games of two people on a panel. And those were like some of my sorry. first. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, it was just really hard to get into it at first because I was the person giving the, the crowbar to the, the avatar at one point in time. But I feel like I've grown up, but I've, you know, I play a lot of other games and I pick up on the like, literacy there. So, yeah, other genres that would help with adventure games. Like, I think a lot of genres have incorporated adventure game elements. Yeah. I mean, most have, like even shooters have adventure game elements now. Um, a lot of RPGs have them, and there's like, a, that's what I would try to do with Unabout, actually. I tried to incorporate RPG elements into an adventure game, um, or at least the bits that I liked. Um, that, I don't know. I often see... Yeah, I'm not sure that answered the question at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a lot of genres uh, lend themselves to adventure games. It's kind of what's great about it is that you can have a story and characters in doing anything, like from, you know, a, a mineralist on an adventure versus, you know, on a detective, uh, or anything in between, really. Um, so I can't think, I mean, there are sometimes, like, yeah, some cool gameplay elements, I think, that 
adventure games can incorporate in interesting ways to make them like can just kind of like spice up the thing from necessarily just like here's an inventory puzzle, here is talking to someone, here is walking around. Um, and I'm of course blanking on specific examples, but <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring in really whatever you want to an adventure game. I think it's actually kind of a weird phenomenon where. Um, other game genres can incorporate adventure game bits, and then there's still that genre. Mm -hmm. But I think if it's an adventure game and we added some, like an RTS element, then all of a sudden it's not considered an adventure game oh, yeah. anymore, and it's considered an RTS. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how that works, but that's just how that works. Yeah, that's so true. And I can't <laughs> speak to a specific genre, but I think one of the things as far as like readability is uh, minimalism. Um, in like, because you know, a lot of adventure games go for the old like verb system where if you think about it a lot of the old games with the verbs they didn't use that many verbs they were the common ones that they used i used to be all about yeah i want to use all the icons but now i'm just like single click context sensitive <laughs> it's easier to learn it's easier to pick up next question yeah. do you find the uh, rewards for branching narratives worth the efforts uh, extra efforts that Oh my god, I could talk about this for years. That's <laughs> I'm going to jump in and I'm going to say yes. I think that, um, I know that there was a recently published article talking about how in Mass Effect nobody paid as Renegade and their people were sad because they were like, but we put so much work into this content. Um, nowadays, it's really hard to ask people to uh, play your game once, let alone multiple times. So as far as like replayability with branching narratives and stuff, it might feel like you're kind of working against yourself. But I personally think, as long as you're not going crazy and extending your development time by years or whatever, I think it's worth having, just letting the player know that they could have done something different, I think is more rewarding to a player than actually doing it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so that's where I stand, you all. I agree, piggybacking off of that, I will agree, I think it was never about getting people to replay Unavowed. Each mission in the game had like five different ways of going through it. Because I still haven't finished all of the endings of that, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's more like, our, but the important thing to remember is that each of those, every choice is equally valid. At no point do, if you choose Logan on this mission instead of Eli, like that's not, you don't get a bad version of that mission. It's still both equally fun, equally valid. And at the end of the game, like you'll never say that, oh, you made a wrong choice. Each of the choices are equally fun. Each of the choices are equally meaningful. That's what, that was the challenge. Um, the challenge of this game, like, it, it's not like I did anything unique or different. It was just, I did everything that I normally do, just a lot more of it. And I think it was worth it, because what I really wanted more than anything was for people to talk about the game and talk about their individual experiences playing the game. And how everyone had a different experience playing it, and they talked to each other, and like on forums or on Discord or on Twitter or whatever, and just sort of fostering that discussion and keeping that going. It's all about keeping people talking about your game and having the different paths in there and having each of them, you know, none of them be wrong or bad, um, meant that people will talk to each other about what they experienced and hopefully keep the conversation going. I think there are two aspects that I think of when I consider branching narrative. One of them is you do want players to feel like they are have agency and they have choices. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have different endings, then that can kind of, that illusion can be shattered a little bit. 
Um, the other aspect is when we talk about let's players playing the game, it's kind of like a let's We're players done? insurance okay. because they'll play it once and they'll get an edit. This person is holding up a sign that says time. Sorry. Yeah. So I assume that means. Yeah, we have, we have about one minute left, so let's wrap this up. Sorry yeah. to everyone, we'll be available to I didn't ask know if that meant we had it was almost time or if it was actually time. Let's uh, <laughs> go ahead and wrap up this question and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I mean, you guys all had good answers on it, but yeah. Um, Feeling like, you know, if you're putting in choices, make it feel like those choices matter. Um, and, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's equally valid. Those are, those are good answers. So, yeah. <laughs> but not every game needs them. Yeah. All right. It's 3 o'clock. Thank you all for coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We will be here with somewhere. If you didn't get a chance to ask your question, come talk to us. We'd love talking. We'll be outside. Yeah. All right. <laughs>